Welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe, an interview-based podcast featuring conversations at the convergence of politics, environment and mental health in a world on edge. My name is Ben Habib and I'm an international relations scholar, an environmentalist, permaculture practitioner and neurodivergent coffee drinker. Join me in my quest to explore the edges that define us, divide us and shape how we interact with each other as we grapple with the extraordinary changes taking place across our world. Order a hot beverage and get comfortable. This is the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Greetings, Edge Dwellers. Most of us can relate to the maddening frustrations of trying to get love from big bureaucracies, whether we're customers or clients or service users, or maybe we even work in one. We deal with these organisations daily, from government departments and big companies, and yes, even universities. These are hostile environments for many edge dwellers, and universities are no exception, for both staff and students alike. This episode is about the challenges that arise from working and studying in the university sector as someone who's mad. The word madness has been reclaimed by advocates of the social model of mental health, flipping the script on the traditional interpretation of madness as a pejorative. It reinterprets madness as an empowering political identity for people who are mentally ill and or neurodiverse. In this episode, I'm joined in conversation by my Latrobe University colleague and research collaborator, Tessa Zernsack. Tessa is a PhD candidate researching social approaches to disability and new philosophical approaches to violence against people with intellectual disability. She also currently works at Melbourne University as a research fellow on the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability and as a research assistant with La Trobe University and SCOPE across multiple projects concerning psychosocial and intellectual disability. There's so many edges to explore here. The launching pad for our discussion is an upcoming book chapter that Tessa and I co-authored called Learning From Each Other, an autoethnographic dialogue on being mad in the academy. From the forthcoming book, Disability in the Academic Job Market, which is going to be published by Vernon Press. From here, we get into the madness movement and the field of mad studies, the expertise of lived experience, university study for mad people, and the pitfalls of coming out as mad in the university. We also explore what it's like to go through a university restructure process from our perspectives as mad academics, and we get into Tessa's PhD research into systemic violence in the disability sector. So pour a cup of coffee and settle in for my conversation with Tessa Zernsack, on what it means to be a human being with unique needs within the authoritarian bureaucracy of the contemporary university. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. Tessa Zensack, welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Oh, thanks, Ben. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, well, I thought we'd use as our starting point the, the book chapter that we've co-authored over the last couple of years called Learning from Each Other, an Autoethnographic Dialogue on Being Mad in the Academy. And so this was the basis for our initial collaboration and getting to know each other. And so this is a great starting point to exploring your research and expertise uh, in the fields of disability and neurodiversity and wherever else we go from here. What was your inspiration for the book chapter? That's a good question. So I think first and foremost, what drove me to put this together was a awareness that if I did not publish anything during my PhD, I would not be a successful academic. So in a lot of ways, yeah, while this project has meant so much in terms of both of our developments independently, it really was born of that kind of anxiety that without publishing, I would not become an academic. I found the bio through like a, a list server, you know, where they send it out to thousands and thousands of people and it looked uh, achievable. It looked, like a, it looked like a publication that was at the level I was at. It looked like an area I was interested in, but I didn't, at that time, I didn't really have the skills to kind of talk about my own experiences in that way. But what I did have was the capacity to talk about scholarship, the scholarship they were looking for, which was that kind of madness study stuff. So I had that scholarship, but not the auto ethnographic bits that, that the chapter really called for. 
And so then I was thinking about who do I know who might have those skills? And I had recently become aware of your experiences through um, an article in the ABC with Virginia Trioli, where you talked, where you reflected on that experience that you had. And so I was like, well, maybe, maybe he would do it. And, 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 you know, because I knew that you'd been kind of open about it because I'd seen it in in the news already. So I was like, well, maybe he would do it with me. I can bring the, I can bring the the scholarship. He can bring the autoethnography, which is, depending on how comfortable you are talking, that can kind of be the less labory bit because you don't have to cite it and then we went from there and I remember when you asked me I was really excited by that actually I mean we'd we'd met a few times in the hallway uh, so we knew who each other were but we hadn't collaborated on anything and and so I thought it was a really courageous move for you to to ask me to be involved in this project particularly you know as an emerging scholar and a, and a PhD candidate so what was how did that feel to to make that or to reach out to me as a junior scholar? I mean, I was a little bit nervous because I didn't really know you. And I have found that there's a lot of diversity in terms of how scholars treat um, PhD candidates and emerging scholars. And so I wasn't sure. I really wasn't sure what kind of person you were in terms of work. Like you are right that we'd had a few chats and we were kind of friendly with each other in passing, but I really didn't know anything about your, um, you know, how you operate professionally or any of that stuff. So that was a little bit scary. I thought the worst that you could do would be to say no, which then would mean that I didn't have a chapter, which was where I was currently at. So it was kind of like, I was able to kind of rationalise the risk. <laughs> um, and then when you did say yes, I anticipated that your condition of saying yes was that I would then do most of the work, um, which I think is normal in that, you know, because it was my chapter, my idea, and I was kind of driving it. So that made sense from that perspective. But also my knowledge of people collaborating with more senior scholars is that the junior scholars tend to do more of the hours of work, and but the senior scholars might get that first author. And so I wasn't sure how that was going to play out. I wasn't sure what your expectations were going to be in terms of how much work I was going to do. And so I was ready to, I was fully ready to compensate for whatever your expectations were. Um, but I think it worked out really well in that you had very collegial expectations and you were very happy to uh, collaborate meaningfully while, you know, like, and, and help in those kinds of procedural ways, you know, with referencing and, and editing and proofreading and all that stuff, while still also making a very meaningful contribution. So I felt, I really felt that, while it was my expectation, I really felt that we engaged in the chapter as colleagues rather than as a senior and junior scholar. Well, there's a minefield of power dynamics to negotiate there, isn't there? Uh, and, it, you know, we've all heard stories of senior colleagues taking credit, taking over, demanding first authorship uh, and that's never been my deal when it comes to these collaborations like it was your project so I always thought you were in charge you drive the agenda and you just tell me what to do and, and what you needed from me as a contributor and I was really happy with that and I thought you did a good job. Oh thank you I think one of the things that was really excellent was that I did have that kind of leadership and control but I was still able to defer to your skill set when I needed to so I'm one of the skills that I am still not particularly good at, but particularly when we wrote the chapter, maybe two years ago now, was that kind of end stage editing. Like I would end up getting frustrated at the end and just submit whatever, you know, I'd just be like, it's too hard. I'm just going to submit what I've got because, you know, it's, it's just costing me too much to do these minor edits at the end. But I think that being able to defer to your judgment as you've had that kind of ongoing experience was actually a really valuable learning exercise for me, even though, you know, you've just characterised me and, and fairly, I think, as the kind of leader of the project. Mm, and that's the kind of skill development that can be really useful, like where a senior colleague can, can make a really meaningful contribution in that kind of collaboration. So what was it like for you when I suggested that we do an academic article about your experiences um, with madness? was actually very auspicious timing because I'd, I'd written a series of blog articles on my website about my experiences with anxiety and depression over the years. So, you know, this televised meltdown that I had on, on ABC News 24, it was very public, but it was a real catalyzing event in my life where it forced me to really, first of all, get up front with myself about where I was at. Uh, but also it forced me, I was outed in public with these issues because of what this happened on national television 
And my only coping strategy that I saw was to be able to write about it and you know talk about what it felt like in the moment, but then contextualize that with my lifetime struggles with anxiety and depression. That came across really well and it I got a really good reception from that. So that's how I came out as mad in the academic workplace. <laughs> it's because I had a nationally televised meltdown. Uh, and now at the time, I was approaching that as a sufferer of anxiety. Uh, but I was always wondering, where does this come from? Like, I don't believe that anxiety is just a thing in and of itself. And for me, there was always something underlying it. Like, why am I this way? I've been engaged in this relentless search to try and figure out why. Been through all different kinds of therapies and healing modalities and learned a lot about myself, but never really found the answer to that question. It was always something that was a little bit out of view. So your request came at a really important time in that journey and helped me to flesh it out. And I wanted to do some academic research on this stuff. You know, I felt like I had a body of a body of work from my own experience that I wanted to share and explore more fully from a from an academic perspective, but I didn't know where to start because I didn't have a, a disciplinary background as you did. So, you know, when you asked me to be involved, I thought this was a very natural yes. This fit where I was at in my life, and it uh, you know we got a chance to work together on a on a collaborative project that sounded cool from the get go, uh, and through that process, you know we. We had a lot of meetings where we teased this stuff out and we got to know each other. I learned a lot from you, particularly about the field of mad studies, uh, which has had a profound impact on my thinking. But then also for you to be there you know, as a, as a trusted colleague and friend, as I discovered that I was neurodivergent and got my preliminary autism diagnosis, our work was a real foundation. It was a, was a scaffolding in which I was able to process my autism diagnosis in a positive way and come out about that. And the second coming out uh, was not nearly as difficult as the first one because I was already out as mad and I'd established, you know, the risks, the barriers to doing that for me professionally were very low. And so I almost felt like a responsibility to, uh, to be able to step out and say, this is who I am. Uh, because I know that it, you know when I came out after the TV thing, that was important for a lot of people around me to give them a, a space to be vulnerable and be themselves. Your uh, request to collaborate came at a really great time in my journey. Mm. Oh, that's really that's really nice to hear. I think it is a really meaningful contribution to kind of be real about it because, like you've like like you said before. A lot of people in the academy go through this kind of thing. It's just that it, not a lot of people talk about it. And so I think that you're talking about it, even though we've talked about some of the drawbacks for you, has been a really real contribution to the lives of others. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit embarrassing recently when, you know, the article was done about me as the first openly autistic person at La Trobe University. I thought, <laughs> surely I'm not the only one. Like, that's ridiculous to think that. And so it was, it was a little bit embarrassing around the bells and whistles of how that was presented. But on the other hand, like I am in a position to step into that space with relative safety. Mm. A lot of other colleagues, a lot of HDR students like yourself and, and our undergrad students are not in that position of safety to be able to come out uh, and be themselves. And yeah, I know when I was a PhD student, the idea of coming out as mad, let alone neurodivergent, I wouldn't have even known how to have that conversation. Who would I be coming out to? You know, the fact that this happened to me on national TV was actually very helpful because I didn't have to have the same conversation a million times over. It was just there. But what was it like to not have any control over that conversation? Terrifying. <laughs> to yeah. be but, and so that was part of the rationale of, of writing that blog posting. It says, I'm totally out of control. I'm out of my depth. I'm feeling humiliated. I need to do this to reclaim some dignity from what was quite a traumatic experience in the moment. Yeah, of course. I look at it now as an act of transmutation, that something really crappy happened. But through dealing with that, I was able to flip it around into something that turned out to be really positive. So the conceptual basis for the chapter is on mad studies. I understand MAD studies to be this field of scholarship that understands mental illness as a political category and is fundamentally driven by people who identify as having 
a, a mental illness. But in MAD studies, we don't talk about it as mental illness because we're not conceptualising it in that kind of medicalised DSM sort of way. We're conceptualising it as like a part of who we are that's inherent to our being, you know, inherent to our personalities and our skill set and, and all of those kinds of positive things. And so, you know, it's like this fundamental belief that you can't separate a person from, you know, from who they are, which is, you know, someone with a mental illness, um, and that the category of mental illness is a fundamentally political, a politicalised one, and so then we think of that as madness instead of instead of mental illness. And that's also a reclaiming of a, um, of a term that's typically used as a derogatory term to categorise, like to reframe ourselves as, as political beings, I suppose, yeah. And that really resonated with me. When I was doing the the background research for my contribution to the chapter, I thought this is this is how I felt about the subject before I knew how I felt about the subject. I really hate the individualization of responsibility for mental illness. To base it, there's something flawed with an individual person when it's more so often the environment that they're in that's creating or contributing to any illness, uh, or the idea of disability. Well. A person might be disabled in the context of their environment that they're in that's not nurturing and catering to their unique needs. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, and I think one of the things, yeah, that I that is really important about MAD studies is this capacity to collectively organise around our own version of what we want. And there's a movement associated with it, that, that idea of collective organisation and that there's a politics that people can rally around. So... Uh, it's not just rejecting the individualization uh, of mental health as a concept. It's providing a network of social connection and community for people uh, to reject that in praxis as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would completely agree with that characterization. Yeah, so part of the MAD studies canon is a, a reframing of the relationship of people with the mental health system. Uh, so there's different different labels that people use to refer themselves within that construct. One of these that I've come across is the idea of the mental health consumer. So I think I think consumer is a really interesting way to conceptualise what it means to have a mental illness. Uh, and the reason I think that it's really interesting is because it characterises a, a person with madness or mental illness as someone who is engaging with services to remedy that, that part of them, right? So you know, like generally when we think about mental health consumers or mad consumers, we think about more often we hear mental health consumers. We think about people who engage with, you know, say a community health service or they might have been someone who regularly sees a psychologist or, um, you know, engages in kind of these normative um, mental health treatment platforms. And so what the label of consumer gives that person is this role in being able to provide feedback and consultation and have direction in terms of what services are provided and also to have ownership of that role. Because when we think about consumers generally, you know, in kind of the more maybe economic terms, we think of them as people who have agency, right? And so when we conceptualise mental health consumers as consumers, we can we conceptualise them as people with, with agency over, over their services. Um, however, what this really leaves out is that a lot of people don't identify as someone who needs to change their change themselves in terms of being cured from their mental illness. A lot of people, you know, might have personal self development goals related to their mental health, but you know, but not these kinds of like broader like I need to do um, cognitive behavioural therapy or I need to engage with the, you know, with my local council public health systems or whatever. So I think what consumer really leaves out is the capacity for those people who have this non-normative idea of what it means to live with mental illness to have say in mental health services and what kinds of things they would like to see available, but also what it means to have a mental illness. So consumer is meant to be this empowering term, but I think what really happens in this consumer space is this mutual obligation where services may, have, may now have an obligation to provide a higher quality of service. Um, because you know, because of the engagement of consumers, but on the other hand, consumers are now obligated to participate consciously in those services and be active participants when those services may not be even meeting their needs. And what other labels are there that people use within the the mad studies field? Because the consumer is not the only one. Service user is another one, but I think it has some of the same the same limitations. I think there are a lot of terms, and there is a lot of disagreement in you know, across kind of the community. Some professionals will use the lived experience. So they'll say they're a lived experience 
um, practitioner. So that that's someone who has experience of mental illness that they then use to inform their, their service. But that's kind of more of a top down once you've kind of reached that point of being able to market yourself as a as an employee rather than, you know, because some people, um, some mad people are, are so disengaged that they're not, they're not even employees, which is a whole nother thing that we can talk about. Like mad person is one or person with mental illness, which can be more value neutral in terms of that kind of those obligations that I just discussed about coming to a service to engage, um, but still have negative connotations. So I think that, and I think that that's why it is quite fraught in the community about what, what terms people find empowering. And I don't think there's an easy answer. You know, I don't think there's an easy term that we can come up with that would be, that would, that would fit everyone that wouldn't be contentious. So I think that to move forward, we just need to kind of be honest to what feels best for us and, and maybe a little bit less concerned about how other people refer to us in the, in the community. Yeah. Yeah. I guess part of the issue would be that like madness is an umbrella term that incorporates lots of different kinds of, of lived experience. Uh, so for me, like I, I came across this when we started this process from the perspective of someone who had anxiety and depression. Right now, I feel part of this community as someone who's neurodivergent, and that understanding has come about through the process of doing this article and my own journey, uh, which you've helped facilitate through our collaboration. Uh, but there is this this diversity within the madness movement. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's a really uh, interesting point that you've brought up because I think it does it it highlights that when we talk about mental illness, we talk about this specific subset of people who have a an ill, you know, like a, a specific type of illness. But I do think when we talk about madness more broadly, I think there is more space to talk about um, what what we might otherwise conceptualize as disability. Yeah, so like what you're talking about in terms of neurodivergence, although that can, you know, of course that can come under. Um, the mental illness system, like the mental health system in um, in where, where we are in Australia. Um, but when we think about madness as a as a kind of historical concept, we think about it in terms of you know a lot of people with like very serious mental illness um, who are often often have very high needs that aren't being met, which result in more unusual behaviour. Um, but also people with intellectual disability, and I, th- I think there is considerable scope in under the umbrella term of madness or mad studies or the mad community for people with intellectual disability to kind of be meaningful contributors, but also to kind of take take some of the gains of that community. But I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, both in terms of what's happening in, in advocacy movements and what's happening in the academy. The actual practice of allyship, even within a broad movement like this, is, you know, it's tough ongoing work. But one of the things that does stand out in MAD studies and in the MADness movement is this this epistemology of the expertise of people's lived experience. So the idea that an individual person is the expert on their own madness, the expertise of lived experience. So the mental health establishment has done a lot of damage by taking a top-down approach to doing things to MAD people rather than listening to MAD people. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think when we talk about recovery, which is a term I'm skeptical of, but when I talk about it, I kind of mean not no longer having a mental illness, but more in terms of being able to cope with with a society that's fundamentally hostile to people who don't behave in kind of normative assimilated ways. So when you know when when we talk about recovery, I, I think of it more as a, a personal journey to not change yourself, but to work out who you are enough to stand by that and and not experience distress when confronted with ableist interpretations of the world. Yeah, this is a good point to then move to the, the autoethnographic dialogue format that we've used for the article, because I guess that draws from uh, the idea of the expertise of lived, lived experience. So can you speak to the specific model of autoethnography that you chose because it had inspiration in something that you'd seen elsewhere? Yeah, yeah. So our our chapter is us talking back and forth in the form of uh, letters or emails, I think we said. And I took inspiration for that specific format from an article written by uh, Eva Kate, where she is writing to her son who is writing back about her daughter, uh, Sasha, who is a, a woman with a with a quite severe disability, um, and her and her son are discussing like a, a lot of different things to do with 
with the disability rights movement and, um, and specifically how it pertains to people with these kinds of severe and profound disabilities, so people who might not be able to engage in normative political discourse, even, even with some support. And, and I found that article really effective because it brought this, you know, like Eva Kite, the you know, she's a, quite a prolific scholar in the field. So she was bringing this quite established expertise and also her, you know, her strong reputation to this work which was very much an autoethnography. So it was interesting to see how her expertise played against her son's engagement, which was not scholarly in the traditional sense. Um, I think at the time he was working at a ski lodge. So it wasn't it wasn't a work of scholarship in the sense that it was true scholars, but it was in the sense that it did have that kind of real, that real philosophical basis, which I could see in myself for our chapter, alongside this sort of lived experience foundation, which I thought that you really had. And because the methodology had been established by this by this existing chapter, I knew that we had a real case for how us talking back and forth to each other and really relying on that lived experience could be a real scholarly intervention into the book. So what I liked about that format was in the structure of this back and forth sort of email dialogue, and that made it made it real. I know one of the things that bothers me about some autoethnographic research, not all of it, but some, uh, is it can be a bit self-gratuitous. And so bringing this format to the discussion, you're able to ask very pointed questions that could guide my responses, guide my description and my reflection on my own personal experiences. And then my responses guided your next question and so on and so forth. So it provided a structure to how we teased out your questions about madness in academia. So we haven't really touched on that yet, have we? It's the no. the whole the overarching topic of this chapter is about being mad in the academy and what what that means and about coming out in the academy. So, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, sure. So, I think when I did approach you to do this, I think I was also experiencing some anxiety about who I was and making sense of who I was in 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 my journey to kind of become a a, a proper scholar, <laughs> um, shall we say. So my experience is so I I, I have a um, a history of madness. Um, I was I was diagnosed at quite a young age, so around fourteen fifteen, and I still identify as um, as mad. And at the time, I was finding I was finding being in academia to be quite a hostile environment. Not in terms of my supervisors and my direct colleagues at work. I, I found everyone to be uh, extremely friendly and, and 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 you know like professional and, and and lovely in that sense but there was no kind of engagement in my role writing a thesis about violence against people with disability and and we can talk more about that but really that kind of did include this madness umbrella so writing a thesis that did have some relevance to my own experiences and what you know while also kind of never talking about those experiences at work and and also you know seeing this kind of hostility to disabled voices and mad voices in kind of philosophy more broadly. So, you know, this kind of presumption that those voices aren't credible or that particularly in philosophy that disability or madness is a special case that challenges what we think it means to be human, which is not a question that I was finding helpful or relevant and, in fact, kind of made me feel like I, I'm, I may experience prejudice in that space. Yeah, so at the time when we wrote this chapter, I hadn't really come out to anyone, I think, that I worked with directly, although I didn't make an effort to hide who I was. I remember an interaction I had right at the start of my PhD where I was talking to someone who I'd been working with as a student for about four years previously where I told this person that I had an anxiety disorder. And this person expressed surprise, which was quite surprising for me because I thought in the way I presented, it was quite obvious that I'm anxious all the time. Um, and they also said that if I had have told them, they would have been able to support me better, which I thought was an interesting, an interesting thing to have said because, because it, it positions me having a mental illness as something that I should disclose in order to access support when I didn't, I know what kind of supports are available from the university. And usually it's things like extensions, which weren't particularly helpful for me in my context. 
but also that it was an incredibly personal thing for me to disclose at all and that in in disclosing that um and by the time I did disclose it I, I was sure that everyone kind of knew through how I presented that <laughs> that I was operating on a different on a different field and so yeah so it was really interesting to have that kind of feedback that was something that I should have disclosed in order to get support because I felt that people knew and I also didn't want the kinds of support that were available to me. So that was quite a, you know, while a completely well-intentioned interaction on the part of the of the other person, it was quite a jarring experience in terms of how I'm viewed, but also what is what I'm expected to bring with myself and how I'm expected to behave as a mad person in the academy, even among people who I consider to be, you know, extremely approachable and and caring professionals. That really exposes the path of least resistance when it comes to support. So you were asked to individualise your needs and go with the support structures that were on offer. So I presume that's counselling. I presume that's going and getting help from the equity and diversity unit uh, so that you could get extensions and, and perhaps assistive technologies and stuff like that. But... The actual supports that a lot of people need, and I find this too as someone who works in a university, is from the institution itself, the things that the institution can't really change easily. So it could be stuff around classrooms and built environments. Uh, It could be stuff about how the bureaucracy works uh, and the administration, which is really difficult for, you know, I find it really difficult to navigate and I know a lot of other people do too, Uh, about the power relationships that are at play in the university. You know, it's a... The university is an authoritarian hierarchy where every relationship within it is mediated by a a network of hierarchical power relationships. Uh, And all of these things are probably more important to a mad person's lived experience of the university, but they're very difficult for the university to do anything about because they're part of the fabric of the institution. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, in In talking about the structure of the university, one of the things I think was really Difficult for my experience was that I didn't I didn't need extensions, but what I needed more or, or counselling, I didn't need any of those services that were kind of traditionally offered. But what I did need was time from my from my teachers, not for tutoring, but you know the opportunity to kind of ask questions about assessment and to get you know I'd often go for consultation hours to get a little bit more more feedback, and so that was the kind of thing that I that I needed to be successful. But I found that I had to really fight for it, you know, send emails and, and, you know, and a few times I did kind of show up without an appointment because I was like, well, I need, I need to know to be able to do this assessment. And I think that that's, for, for me, I didn't particularly enjoy doing that, but I knew it was things that I had to do to, you know, to, to do what I wanted to do, which was to get, to get my, my Bachelor of Arts and, and move on. But to do that, yeah, I had to engage in, in these processes that weren't particularly comfortable for me, weren't, weren't things that made me feel good about myself or like a like a valued member of the university. And then now as a as a PhD candidate, I can see that the reasons why I had that struggle is because there just isn't the time for academics to provide that kind of one-to-one support. And I'm not talking about hours of support, I'm talking about stuff that can be resolved within consultation hours, you know, in kind of a 10-minute appointment. But when academics don't have that time for their, for their students, it, it can become really challenging in a, in a very kind of covert way. So it's the students who have kind of marginal needs who end up getting left behind because, you know, I didn't felt that I was unwell, for want of a better term, enough to qualify or to need the kind of support that equity and diversity could offer me. But I did need some support and that support was kind of there in terms of you know, what you could read in the subject guide that, you know, you've got the email of the tutor or the teacher or whatever, but it wasn't, you know, that then wasn't backed up with the actual time for that person to have the capacity to to treat every email and every consultation with the kind of attention and thoroughness that, that I think a lot of us try to provide when, you know, when we teach. That sounds reflective of the whole mental health system more broadly, doesn't it? Yeah. In terms of time, like this is a problem with this mass feedlot, mass education model where we've got so many students that, you know, the teacher to student ratio is so large. Uh, you know, I've, every semester I've got 200 plus students uh, and I've got a very limited amount of time that I can devote to their care and their education at a one-to-one level. 
you know, the, the workloads that academic staff have to shoulder, they pull in different directions. And, you know, teaching uh, takes up a lot of time and is very energy and emotion intensive, but it's also not the thing that academic careers are built on. It's built on your research and all the, you know, your career progression is based on your research output, but there's no time for research. So you're constantly stretched in different directions. Uh, and there's increasing administrative duties as well, public engagement work uh, that I do. So all of these things pulls you in a different direction. And so when one of my 200 students needs one-to-one help and one-to-one care, not only are they battling for time with their peers, all the other students in the group, but they're also battling for a slice of my very limited time in the in the context of my larger workload. And that puts a really big burden on students to have to advocate for themselves and to make a case for why their time is important. And I know that that's really difficult when you when you have care needs. The last thing you want to have to do is battle for yourself. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. I think this kind of goes beyond the experience of just mad mad students or students with disability because there is. I'm not an education expert, but from what I do know of education, it's that, you know, kind of three hours face-to-face time a week with an academic is not really sufficient for uh, substantial learning, especially when, you know, two of those three hours a week will probably be a lecture and the way the university is going, it might even be an online lecture. So I think that it is helpful to characterise that as as a disability rights issue in the institution. But I think it goes beyond the experiences of people with disability to also talk to the experiences of students who just might be, you know, in a unit that's going badly for them. I, you know, I, I did a few units that weren't um, weren't quite what I was used to, and so I struggled a little bit more in those. And I've had students as well who might be having a um, a particular issue at home which affects their concentration. And so, while it's not a disability issue per se, it is a life issue. And I think that. You know, if we think about the university as a um, as an educational institution that kind of manufactures these, you know, these kinds of bachelor's bachelor's degrees, then sorry, we need to think about the capacity of the institution to even meet the needs of students who are neurotypical, non-disabled, just kind of doing their best, but might have a struggle over the three years that their that their degree goes for that may affect their their capacity to engage. Dwellers Cafe. I want to ask about this idea of resilience because this comes up in so much of the the literature around pastoral care that universities and other workplaces as well circulate uh, to students and circulate to staff about how to look after your well-being and very much encapsulates this individualization of responsibility for, for mental health and well-being. But what strikes me is one, I find it immensely patronizing. And not helpful at all. I've used these services and they, when the problem was work, they're not capable of addressing the structural problem of which they're a part. But also the idea that people in the academic world are not resilient. You have to demonstrate extraordinary resilience and perseverance and strength, you know, strength of will to get that far in your career. So it's it's particularly galling and patronizing to be told that. Like if you're not coping under this specific set of systemic stresses, it's your fault for being not resilient. I completely agree with um, with what you've said. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about some of my own experiences, as, as especially kind of in the first six months of my of my degree, I had a, a quite a negative experience at a conference where someone behaved in a way that, um, upon reflection, was very unprofessional. But at the time, I thought it was my fault, and like it really, like it, it really kind of broke me like I remember sitting in my office searching how to take a leave of absence because I was like I don't know if I have what it takes you know um and I think that you know if nothing else what I learned from this PhD is how to be resilient because you know I'm still here I'm still doing the degree even after quite a quite a scary experience as a as a very very new candidate but I completely agree with you I think that I think that there's currency for large institutions to individualize people's discomfort in them so you know if the problem is your workforce and you know your workforce isn't resilient or your workforce isn't able to cope with change or whatever 
then it's not an it's not an institution's problem per se. I think that if enough people make enough noise, it can influence the institution. And I think that's where things like you, you know, joining a union and engaging in organizing are really, really helpful. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree with with your point that you know the university will make these broad sweeping changes that will impact a lot of people and it'll impact people differently. So I remember when I was living at home with my parents, some of the changes made to casualized teaching weren't going to impact me as much as some of my my colleagues because I had a roof over my head. My parents weren't going to throw me out. They weren't going to let me go hungry. But, you know, I had colleagues who were, you know, living in share houses. I had colleagues with families and it really impacted them. And to say that it's a problem of personal resilience, I think really obscures how people experience change and the individual circumstances under which that change has an impact. Like, you know, counselling is not going to solve the issue and, and, you know, kind of resilience building isn't going to solve the issue if the issue is that you can't put food on the table, you know. Yeah, to characterise that as, or to characterise not being impacted as resilience, I think it's just, I think it's, I think it's just kind of preferencing wealthier, wealthier employees who have kind of more of a financial buffer to manage, you know, like manage these feelings around loss of work and, and massive restructuring. At the moment at our workplace, we're going through a big organisational restructure and a bunch of involuntary redundancies, uh, you know, 200 plus jobs going. On top of the the many jobs that have been lost by stealth since the start of the COVID crisis from our university and, and indeed across the sector. So that includes people that have been let go through voluntary redundancies. It includes casual staff and fixed term contract staff who've just not been offered new contracts. So they have just melted away. And the ongoing precarity of the university workforce that's been evolving for a long period of time. So this was a, a crisis that's been emerging for a long time, and COVID's just turbocharged it. But this is, you know, this is the context when we're context when we're talking about insecurity and we're talking about the workplace as a source of harm for the people that are in it. This is the context that we're talking about. So Tessa, how have how have you been interpreting this restructure from your perspective as a PhD candidate? It's been very challenging. So I'm both an employee of the university and a PhD candidate. Yeah, it's been quite devastating in terms of my PhD because, because, because of these redundancies. And I think when the university offers voluntary redundancies, it's a sign that worse is to come. And so I've lost my primary supervisor and my, um, my panel chair, which has been uh, quite devastating for my project. Um, for a bit of background, I was hoping to graduate at the end of this year or the start of next year, but that looks like it might not be possible anymore. So I've had to readjust my expectations and my my life <laughs> my, my life plan um, around that. So that's been quite quite upsetting, especially when you think about how much funding the university receives to support graduate research candidates to then, you know, to then kind of lose these two people. And these two people have quite similar expertise and so like quite a lot of overlaps. And so I know there are multiple students in our department who are dealing with the same challenge of, of the double whammy. Much loved colleagues for, for me and, uh, and my peers in the department as well. Yes, of course. And that's another, and I think that's another layer to it. So, you know, we think about I think that the, the restructure process causes us to think about people in terms of their productivity, which is exactly how I just characterised this. But we actually need to be conscious and resist that because work is a, it's something that we all need to do to survive. And so it's, it's violence against workers to have them in these positions where they're constantly questioning if they're going to even have jobs um, in, a, in a few months' time because jobs are our livelihoods, jobs are how we keep ourselves alive, but also the, the social relationships that you then lose and, and the contributions that, that people make that are then kind of erased in, in these, broad, these broad cuts. I remember I was working at the start of the COVID pandemic, I was working casually in the part of the university that, that manufactures resources for students who, are, um, who have um, print disabilities, so students who, you know, might not be able to read a PDF or, or you know, like that kind of thing. And so what, what that role was was basically reformatting material so that it could be read by 
um, augmentive technology or screen readers or that kind of thing. Um, and that whole department was cut. And for me, that wasn't such a huge setback because I had I had my fingers in so many pies that I was kind of like, you know, economically or financially, I'm going to be okay. But what was really heartbreaking was the loss of my boss who had actually spent time developing a specific program for Latrobe to use. And him being made redundant in such a short amount of time meant that that knowledge was lost. The institution no longer uses that, that program. It's just gone. And now I think, now I think all that work is outsourced to, um, to, trans, to transcription companies, which I think is a, is a massive blow to the university to lose that department and that knowledge. The loss of institutional knowledge at times like these of, of restructuring and bloodletting of the workforce is immense. And the institution doesn't recover. We're still reeling from previous restructures uh, that have left their mark. And you don't forget and you don't forgive when you survive these things. It it has a permanent impact on morale. It has a permanent impact on your trust uh, of individuals within the institution as well as the institution itself. Uh, So it's a very jarring and scarring experience. Yeah, it kind of makes me feel like no matter how much you contribute, no matter how dedicated you are, you can still you can still get cut. Yeah, so this raises an important point. When you work in a hierarchical institution, so it could be a university, it could be a government department, it could be a a private enterprise or whatever, big hierarchies exhibit a lot of these common problems in that they can dehumanise all of the people in them, both their staff, their clients, or, or students in our case, as well as external stakeholders. So you have to make calculations when you're in the system as how much do you give to this? Now, from my perspective, this this raises an issue, you know, someone who's come out as mad and neurodivergent. Uh, I've had a lot of, and this has been a positive development, a lot of students and a lot of uh, academic peers have come to me uh, in solidarity and support, but also disclosing their own experiences experiences of madness uh, and asking for assistance coming out positions you as as an authority figure of sorts but it also creates additional intellectual and emotional labor above and beyond uh, your substantive position and that's not accounted for but it's interesting that anyone who's remotely different from the norm in the university system ends up playing a similar kind of role and i've seen lots of colleagues have to occupy this position you know you are a junior academic who's grappling with the possibilities, both good and bad, of what it would mean to come out as mad in an academic workplace. So what were the what were some of your key fears about coming out, your key concerns that were animating this work that we've been doing through this chapter and why you were asking me about it uh, through the autoethnography? Mm, okay. So I think some of my concerns were um, about, about coming out were that if I had any problems from then on, they would be interpreted as, as my problems because of my, my mental illness, um, which I, I thought would be profoundly unfair to me because I have achieved a lot while, while being a mad person and any problems that I have, you know, I want them to be taken at, fel- at face value. I don't want to be kind of held to a different standard or um, maybe denied assistance because of this belief that, it's something that I need to deal with myself in, in a different way. So that was one of my fears. Fortunately, that one hasn't been substantiated, but, you know, you do kind of hear through the whisper network about people who have these kinds of negative experiences, I suppose. Um, I was also concerned at that time when we started writing the chapter, I hadn't broken through to getting any kind of professional work. Often in your first year, it's not encouraged that you'd work as a tutor or an RA, especially if you're right out of honours like I was. Um, And I was concerned that I wouldn't be given professional work uh, because, because because of how people might perceive me. That said, the reason I don't think I've received any professional work in my department has been because there's a lack of places for casual tutors and instead that the kind of marking and tutoring work which would have been what I would have been really liked with been doing tend to fall to kind of the ongoing ongoing staff really um, and so work that I have picked up has actually been in a completely different department so um, it's it's been quite a different um, a different experience and I think it's actually been quite good to have it that way because it kind of divorces my personal 
distress around doing a PhD. I think that distress is a part of doing a PhD from my professional work. I see people who work and do their PhD for the same the same person, so their boss and their supervisor are the same person. And I think that's a very challenging position to be in because when you do a PhD, you have all this stress and, you know, all these things that you that you might think you can't do. Um, whereas at work, I don't kind of want to give that perception up. I want to kind of come across as a bit confident um, in a way that I can't do my PhD just yet. That's a really interesting point about uh, working for your supervisor as well as being a student. Because I guess the, the, the academic supervisor and the, the PhD candidate, this is a mentoring relationship that's meant to be nurturing and it's meant to be about intellectual and skill development because you're trying to get to the level of being a peer. Whereas when you're also tutoring uh, in a subject that's coordinated for your supervisor, then there's a managerial power relationship that's inserted over the top of that. So I never actually thought of this, but it makes total sense that that would very much complicate that relationship. Yeah, I think so. I think I've been accidentally lucky in that I haven't been in that position. That said, I would really love to work for my supervisors if, if our department had the kind of budget to hire RAs and tutors for that kind of thing. It's a shame. The evaporation of budgets for us to employ casual staff you know, across the university, that's meant that for our PhD students, getting that sessional teaching work was part of your apprenticeship to become an academic and, uh, and a vehicle for developing professional skills, not just for academia, but forever, wherever else you might end up. And now we're not able to offer that uh, in a lot of cases because the money just isn't there. Yeah, and I think it has implications for research outputs too, because then that work falls to permanent academic roles who you know, and the people in them now have to compensate for that. That loss of a, of a casual then means an increase in their workload and a decrease in their capacity to, to engage in meaningful research outputs. Yeah, and then to loop back to that inability for academic staff to offer pastoral care to students, it's that workload inflation decreases the amount of time we have available to give the care that we want to give. Yeah, and something I find quite interesting as a postgraduate as well, or quite challenging, I suppose, as a postgraduate is the lack of availability from supervisors um, quite often, you know, because, I, because they're dealing with all these things that we've, that, that we've touched on already against the university policies. Something I find quite challenging is making sense of how much I can expect supervision or engagement from supervisors. And I've seen other, other people, in, you know, peers struggle with this. As PhD students, you really, you know, you need quite substantial time from your supervisor over the, over the course of, of, of a degree, right? Like you need that kind of ongoing engagement. But when supervisors are so pushed in their teaching capacity that, they're, that they don't have that kind of time, it creates... It, it creates a mismatch where the, the needs of the student aren't able to be met because um, because the supervisor's off, you know, having to teach 200 undergraduate students without any support. And then if you talk to the university about this, they will tell you that the supervisor is not meeting their expectations, which is not helpful because that person can't meet those expectations because they're busy tutoring in a, in a role where realistically, you know, five, ten years ago, you would have had a casual helping. So um, I find that quite challenging to deal with because I think it comes back to that, what we're talking about, about resilience, where the university is putting responsibility on employees to resolve problems that it is manufacturing in it in the way that it's restructuring itself. Well put, well put. I want to come now to your PhD research because uh, obviously this is the underpinning of everything that we're talking about here. So you've been doing research into systemic violence in the disability sector. Can you give a, a synopsis of where you're going with your PhD? Yeah, sure. So the original contribution of my PhD is a new model which we can use to think through violence against people with um, intellectual disability. Um, when I started the research, it was also about um, people with mental illness as well, but I've had to kind of jettison that little bit, which has been very disappointing, but it might, might form a, a few papers down the way. What I've done in my PhD is I've looked at a whole um, array of different ways that people think about violence against people with intellectual disability. And what I have kind of noticed about these models is that they really fail to account for some of the complexities of violence that we see in our society. So 
people with intellectual disability are most likely to be harmed by a family member or a carer, which I think is really complex because when you talk to family members and carers, you know, often they can be quite strong advocates for their for their family member with um, with disability. Often they're engaging in kind of you know they're either providing long term support or they're acting as an advocate for for that person if they're living out of home. So they you know they then fulfill this role of um, kind of quality assurance that the that the home is or, you know the the residential facility is up to a standard they're happy with. And then there's also kind of a lot of literature about what happens when a parent does become an advocate and how how they can be kind of boxed out of their child's their adult child's care. And so what I find really interesting in terms of the problem of violence against the intellectual disability community was how do we make sense of parents who engage in violence against their children? And specifically I look at two cases where parents have murdered their adult person, their adult child with an intellectual disability and then committed suicide after after experiencing some kind of long-term adverse event. So for one, it was that the family had been being harassed by local youths for more than a year. Um, and the and the person, the parent had engaged in a lot of different ways to try and access support and had been told that she just had to kind of put up with the with the harassment. And the other one was um the father believed that his two adult sons who who he murdered were being abused in their home and he wasn't able to access any kind of support. So the two kind of dominant ways of thinking about violence against people with disability is that it's care a burden. So carers become so, so tired and so stressed that they have to engage in violence. Or we think of it, which, which then puts, you know, the problem is like the person, right? Or we think about it as like the parents are, or, the, or the perpetrator is a bad person who is acting outside of what is acceptable behaviour and then, you know, and so and that's their engagement in violence. And so the, the solution to that is to remove the that, that person from you know, being around people with disabilities. So either, you know, sometimes people like that just get fired, sometimes they go to prison. What these approaches leave out is a recognition of the way in which society incentivizes and manufactures situations in which violence against people with cognitive disability occur. And then I argue that if we recognise that, we don't then have to throw out, well, you know, we can't hold perpetrators accountable anymore because now we know it's a systemic problem. We can actually have both. We can hold perpetrators accountable for what they do, but we can also say, well, that you know, society has manufactured this um, this problem um, in which you have very limited resources. And I think that that can be more authentic to the experience of um, trying to care for someone with an intellectual disability without receiving any kind of support, while, of course, the thesis is not suggest that violence is an acceptable way to manage that kind of stress it it also it does kind of suggest that to say that you know it's the parents the parents were bad people and they shouldn't have done that is reductive because it doesn't address this broader issue you can't hold individuals responsible without also holding the systems that they're in responsible as well i think that's really good medicine because that is equally attributable to almost any social problem you can think of uh, at the moment. So there's deeper questions around what we value as a society and the kinds of behaviours and outcomes that are incentivised by the systems that we live in. What does best practice in the disability sector look like? What kind of innovations of practice, of ways of organising, of service delivery are the best? That is a really big question and you'll get a lot of different answers depending on who you ask. I think best practice means listening to the person and having the person engaged in every decision that is made around them, even if that engagement is with support. So there's this thing called supported decision-making where people engage in kind of these specific practices to help someone to make an informed decision. Um, I think there's a lot of debate in the literature about if people with intellectual disabilities should be allowed to make bad decisions. And I think that I'm allowed to make bad decisions, so why not everyone else? I think in a in a violence context, best practice is taking people seriously when they when they're telling you they have a problem. 
which I think too often is not the case for people with disability. And I think in, in both of the cases with the parents that I mentioned earlier, both of them were expressing that they had an issue for a long time before, you know, before they engaged in these, in these acts of violence. So I really, I really think it's about listening to the person and um, engaging support to, to have, you know, to have the person with disability listen to and, and their family to an extent. Yeah, again, this this wheels back to some of the core ideas of, of the madness movement and mad studies about the, the importance uh, of the individual person's lived experience and their testimony about what they need and, and what's right for their life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too often approaches that try to kind of manage people's disability actually kind of fail because you're not accepting the person where they're at. And, you know, I do think there is a lot of space for capacity building and and skill development, but I think that's the case for everyone. And when we focus that on just the disability context, we lose that, you know, people with disability can have really real problems that need external addressing and to just say, well, you know, you need to build your capacities. You know, it's just as irrelevant as it is when we were talking about in the university how we're expected to be resilient to manage change. So, you know, that's not a helpful approach especially when, you know, when we think about in the disability sector, the kind of lack of support that's available. And you've got a, a new article out that you've co-authored uh, with a number of colleagues of social inclusion of LGBTQ and gender diverse adults with intellectual disability in disability services. Yeah, sure. So that article, it's a part of a project called the Rainbow Me Project, and it's about the experiences of LGBTQ plus people with intellectual disability. So that article is actually a little bit of background. So it's looking at kind of the current state of play in in disability services and in queer community. And I think one of the, the main findings from that was that problems that we have as a society in terms of acceptance of difference particularly LGBT identity in in the context of this paper, are replicated in disability environments but to a much higher extent because of the kind of control and lack of choice in those environments. So for for a queer person with intellectual disability, they might might engage in a service where, where people have kind of homophobic attitudes and rather than kind of just leave that service... They might, they, you know, too often they're kind of stuck in that in that space, so they don't have that, you know, even kind of the options to to move on from to move on from that kind of place to ex- to exclude themselves. You know, I think on the one hand, people shouldn't have to kind of be in those positions in the first place. We should kind of have accepting societies where we don't encounter these sorts of problems at all. But thinking about it kind of more in a more kind of um, maybe realistic um, or pessimistic depending on your outlook it's not acceptable to kind of require that people leave services to access acceptance basically but for people with disability often that option to leave you know they might not even have that option because services might not be available they might not be able to articulate precisely why they're uncomfortable caregivers might not believe them that there's an issue or they might not think their identity is valid and so there are all these kinds of problems that happen when when a person with disability is engaging in a service that that is that is queerphobic or has queerphobic staff I imagine it's hard enough to get service in the first place or or get support in the first place uh, without then getting there and realizing that is deeply problematic. It's, I guess, it's a choice of either that or nothing. Yeah, often, and it's it's interesting because often the services can be of um, quite low quality in the first place, and so the the issue that you might want to address if you're a person with disability or a parent or carer might not necessarily be queer phobia in the first instance. It might be more like that you want more meaningful activities or more hours or something kind of a little bit more perhaps more pressing than this kind of acceptance of identity issue yeah kind of just as serious I suppose. From your perspective uh, in disability studies and mad studies what does it mean to be an edge dweller? That's a good question. This is probably more of a a heart than a head question. Mm, I think it means to be authentic, so to really be 
true to what you think is right, especially as a researcher. I think sometimes as a researcher, we really have to think about if what we're doing is actually helpful and, and you know, if it's kind of morally the, the right kind of contribution that we need to be making to the world. But I also think, I think it has to do with questioning dominant structures of power. There are a lot of people already doing that and I think that, you know, there's a community of edge dwellers that, that we can be part of and we can engage with. But, yeah, I think it's just, you know, maintaining that kind of scepticism, that enthusiasm for, you know, for change and for, for being who you really are, not being afraid to be wrong. Um, and, and not really thinking about title or reputation too much, which I think is something that I need to work on because, you know, it can be really hard as a emerging scholar to, you know, you want to be someone who looks hireable because you got to eat. But to maintain that kind of authenticity on top of that, it's like a, a new challenge, which I'm not close to resolving yet. Yeah, you and most of academia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Edge Dwellers Cafe. That was my conversation with Tessa Zernsack. And what a way to finish off. I love Tessa's definition of an edge dweller as someone who challenges dehumanizing systems of power, which is such an important element of the madness movement. If you're interested in further information about this topic, there's links in the show notes to the publications and organizations mentioned during the conversation. And you'll also find contact details for Tessa and myself in the show notes. If you like what you're hearing on Edge Dwellers Cafe and you want to support the podcast, please click the like and subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also support the podcast financially by subscribing as an Edge Dwellers Cafe member on Patreon. As a Patreon member, you get access to bonus material, as well as a regular live interactive webinar with me and other fellow Edge Dwellers. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Ben Habib bidding you farewell from the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Much love.